0: You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Alright, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am your cold and hungry host, Abraham. And I
1: am your host, Shane, that is now looking at Abraham as a nice little bit of cold cuts. Oh no. <laughs> it's like
0: sweet breads.
1: Sweet bread. Um, sweet- oh God, I heard a really awful story about a cult that was doing like impromptu surgery and just I can't I can't every time I hear the word sweet I'm like nope this is what I
0: think of now and no thanks yikes <laughs> it's words you do not want to hear impromptu surgery nope nope things are not going well when that's the choice that's being made <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah yeah it's not the best but we're not talking about that today well kind of I guess maybe uh, we're getting to that sorta. but not at this moment
0: yeah so we are going to tell you a the true story of a family who was on a Western frontier journey. Yes, there is some, I guess, spoiler alert and also a rating warning. We're going to uh-huh. be talking about some cannibalism mm-hmm. and violence and hardships to some extent. So if you are sensitive to that sort of thing, this may not be the episode for you, but we'll try and keep it as light and engaging as possible. So that's that's what we're doing today.
1: Yeah. So today we are talking about the Donner Party. And so if you are not familiar with the story, it is a story that I feel like maybe gets diluted in its severity or its complexity. When you start kind of hearing the stories kind of told in the United States, at least it's a story that always ends up with like people ate people. And that's actually not the entire story. The entire story is far more interesting than just that, that moment. Right. And actually like leading up to why it happened and all that stuff is is actually pretty interesting. And it makes sense on some level of how those folks got to that space.
0: And it's not at all like, this is one of those stories where it was people maybe think, oh, maybe it didn't really happen that way, or it wasn't as bad. It was pretty bad. Yeah. But as you said, as, and I think the rele- relevant part here is there was, a. Um, there was a lot going on in the story, and I think to unpack a little, trying to understand why people do what they do in extreme circumstances like this, mm-hmm. I think is an interesting exercise. So, yeah, so there's a lot to unpack about the individuals, uh, who they were, why this occurred, why this family has become sort of a household name. Uh huh. And so, yeah, we that's what we're going to unpack today. Also, as a side note, that's kind of fun. I'm actually not that far from Donner Summit. <laughs> yeah. if, if uh, so i80 is as far as i know at the time of this recording the only freeway that crosses the entire united states uninterrupted so you can go from san francisco to new york city okay i80 goes right through donner summit through the sierra nevadas it's, it's technically in california at that point and anyway so it's not not that it's uh it's fairly close i can go visit donner lake yeah. and and see the the sites where there was maybe once a big dining <laughs> hall
1: yeah. Yeah. As I was gonna say, probably not a great place to pick up barbecue, but you know, honestly, like it w- I think one thing that's going to be interesting and really apparent is like that highway did not exist when these folks were going through there. So essentially they created this, they had to create a pathway to get where they were going. So we're putting the cart before the horse here. So what we want to do is try to answer a few big questions. Like what is cannibalism? Where did the term come from? Why were they even heading West? What does the Mexican-American War have to do with the Donner Party? Why did the Donner Party resort to cannibalism? Is there a modern day form of cannibalism? What would you do if you were in such a situation? What have others done in a similar situation? And yeah, we're going to try to unpack some more within that.
0: Awesome. All right. So let's start by unpacking the term cannibalism. Most modern anthropologists and scientists prefer the term anthropophagy. To refer to the practice of eating members of one own one's own species, so cannibalism and cannibalization, according to the Oxford Dictionary, this is the practice of eating other people, <laughs> the practice among animals of eating one other of the same type. So we've kind of already said this. Or cannibalization, the act of eat of an animal eating an animal of its own kind, all the same sort of idea. Mm-hmm. And this is this is something that exists in a lot of different species sometimes a little more systematically yeah but it's not not super common for i think pretty good evolutionary reasons
1: this is essentially humans eating humans snakes eating snakes alligators eating alligators cows eating cows things like that so that's really pretty much like just it boils down to a eats a b eats b so on and so forth so the etymology of cannibal spelled c-a-n-n-u-b-a-l is that human that eats human flesh. This was coined in the 19 or the 1550s, I should say, from Spanish cannibal or caribal, which means a savage cannibal, or from uh, canaba, which was Christopher Columbus's rendition of West Indies tribe, Caribs' name for themselves, right? So there's kind of all this, like, all this stuff kind of lumped into this idea of what like where this term comes from. So the the West Indies tribe, Caribs, the name for themselves also is translated into Kalino or Carina. You see this like kind of a lot of different variations of this, this, these sounds in the, in these phrases.
0: So we, as you said, we of course have Christopher Columbus to thank for this. Yeah. Once again, ignorant and upstanding dude. Yeah. And, and racist term. So the natives of this Island were believed by Europeans to be these anthropophagites so cannibals yep and Columbus sinking evidence that he was seeking evidence that he was in Asia thought that the name meant that the natives were uh, subjects of the great Khan mm-hmm. from, from Star Trek Khan <laughs> yeah, yeah Khan <laughs> The form was reinforced by later writers who connected it to the term canis, meaning dog, in reference to their supposed voraciousness, a coincidence which naturally tickled the etymological fancy of the 16th century. And so that was a direct (laughs) quote there. And the Spanish word reached the French by 1515, and it was used to describe the behavior of animals in 1796. And then there is an old English word for cannibal, a selfita.
1: There's a lot of history with this word the term cannibalism was originated from and given to individuals who may not have even been cannibals. And so just another example of how awful Christopher Columbus was pretty much providing a label to a group of people that actually was pretty inaccurate. And, you know, I don't, I just, as I get older, the more I think about Columbus, I just think of like how useless he was like, he was not only just like a, a scathing racist, but he's kind of dumb. Yeah. Everything he did was a mistake. And just like it ends up being a horrific mistake for the people that were involved in it.
0: Yeah, he kind of sucked. And I can't tell if the celebration of him that has taken place historically was just revisionist history about what he did or if it was like people really did have the skewed favorable opinion of him that we've sort of been more aware of over time. But no, he sucked. Yeah. And going back to this, so basically what we've been saying this whole time, giving you history on the, this term, is that it comes from a name that the Spanish gave to these islanders, the Caribs, and the Spanish accused them of ritualistically eating their enemies. But the scholars that we have, the anthropologists and the modern day scientists that we have, really doubt that that's actually how they behaved. Because the Caribs were engaged in anti-colonial battle with a host of European powers. Many historians now think that the cannibalism rumors were rumors were just propaganda that was used as a tactic by the Spanish to stir up fears and dehumanize them as enemies.
1: Weird that an imperialist and colonial approach to subduing other cultures would be to lie about them. Shock. So uncharacteristic. Mm, I know, just so out of the norm. Okay, so on the other hand, we do have some evidence that Caribs use body parts as trophies. So cannibalism is a possibility, but it's not ever been founded or, or really there's kind of another, there's another approach to it. So especially as an intimidation measure or an act of war, like if I was on the front line, I would, that would scare the shit out of me. So like that totally makes sense. So most of our initial testimony comes from Columbus, though, who had many, many, many reasons, both personal and political to make the Caribs seem as savage as possible. So it makes sense that he would lie about a bunch of stuff.
0: So why are we talking about the cannibals and about Christopher Columbus? Let's get back to our to our story here about our main crew. (laughs) we were talking about the Donner Party and their migration west. Okay, first, let's set the context here. This idea of migrating West was very popular. It was very in vogue. You know, these are self-righteous genocidal maniacs. Uh, Actually, no, I mean, I'm sorry. It was because of the hypothesis of Manifest Destiny. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Different thing altogether. So Manifest Destiny, just for those people who maybe don't remember what this term is or have never heard it before somehow, this was this widely held cultural belief in the 19th century United States that American settlers were destined to expand across North America Mm -hmm. and that we had to kill everybody in our way, basically. Yep. And so they wanted to, quote unquote, discover the Westland. And then hopefully when they got there, they would make that discovered land their home.
1: Yeah. And that's why you'll see like in, I believe it's Texas, that there's a lot of these like homesteads that are like, or like quote unquote counties that are just basic squares. Like they sectioned off so much of that land in, into these like really kind of like compartmentalized regimented things. And they're not as gerrymandered as like some other places, but.
0: I want to go into like an Ikea and discover some like giant TV that I can just take home for free.
1: <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, that's kind of how that works, right? Yeah.
0: That, that's how I think that I'm, I'm, I'm understanding this term. Discover means to steal away from the people who have it already.
1: Yeah. Well, it's your God given land. That's, that was the whole thing. This is my TV.
0: Right? Now God gave it to me. It's mine. I'm taking it.
1: <laughs> I discovered it. You know, it. this wasn't due to the gold rush. People were just going out and they were trying to, they were, they were migrating West. They were trying to find new land. They were trying to find new places to settle. And the gold rush actually happened a few years later. Now, real quick, if you're not familiar with the gold rush, when gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in Coloma, California, the trickle of immigrants became a flood as thousands of prospectors and families made their way to the Golden State in hopes of finding their fortune. So like they were they were really looking for like this kind of payout, this cash out, because there was gold. There was gold in them air heels. <laughs> right, That's, I think, what prospectors say, right? Yep. Now, according to some stats, over 70,000 emigrants used the California Trail from 1849 to 1850 alone. So in that one year, you see this huge movement of people across the country. Now, in the two decades of the 1840s and 1850s, the California Trail carried over 250,000 gold seekers and farmers to the state's gold fields and rich farmlands. And it was the greatest mass migration in American history from settlers. So you see this huge movement of people at this time and and actually went on to help kind of settle California as one of the states in in the United States.
0: Now, getting back to we had teased at the beginning, the Mexican-American War, and this is relevant because California was part of Mexico until 1848. And so if you remember the dates we just mentioned, there were 70,000 immigrants using that trail starting in 1849. So just the year before that, Mexico had lost the Mexican-American War, and then the gold rush occurred one year later. And so you can really think on what could have been done with those resources had Mexico won and kept that part of California. They'd be building a wall to keep us out of California right now (laughs) of all the people in the United States trying to immigrate there.
1: Yeah, or uh, Americans wouldn't have taken delicious Mexican food and bastardized it. Yeah. So it could be any number of things. But, you know, with this context, there are these expeditions that are going to the west. And so this expedition occurred after the Oregon Trail as well. So the Oregon Trail was laid by fur traders and trappers from about 1811 to 1840 and was only passable on foot or by horseback. So you were not about to put a covered wagon onto these trails because you simply couldn't get there. Right. That trail was was dangerous. It was narrow. It was Just really uh, very difficult to traverse. You died of dysentery. Uh, Yeah, always, right? That's right. And every time I think of the word dysentery, I think of that Blink-182 song, Dysentery, Gary. Yep,
0: I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) Wow, we just dated ourselves so hard.
1: I know. Well, I was in like eighth grade when that album came out. It was formative years. You dated
0: yourself even more.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, oh no. So by 1836, dysentery was no longer killing 99% of westward travelers. And the first migrant wagon train was organized in independence missouri as a wagon trail had been cleared to fort hall idaho so now you've got this wagon trail now you've got these like these grouped together these these wagons that are going these wagon trains that are going and people are moving in that direction
0: now for some reason they just did not like taking highways back at this time (laughs) largely because they didn't exist so a trip in a wagon or really just an average trip length to cross the united states from missouri so we're already halfway across the United States at that point <laughs> right? to Oregon in the 1840s and in 1860s was approximately five months. So a significant chunk of the year. Wow. that's a very long time to be traveling. Yeah. I can't even imagine what it would be like to be traveling for that long. That sounds miserable. I know.
1: Well, and also too, keeping in mind that like while you're on this trail, like it's not like you have a ton of like you're not bringing like a house full of food or a grocery store with you like you have to hunt you have to seek food you have to like forage like there's a lot of stuff you had to do to survive while you're on this and wagon trains were pretty hefty groups it wasn't like one or two people traveling together i mean you're talking about families of people i mean you'll see that when we kind of get into the members of the Donner Party group
0: yeah so they're moving at just a snail's pace covering very mm-hmm. few miles per day so it makes sense why it takes so long now the main routes Initially taken during 1846 through 48 was the Truckee Trail to the Sacramento Valley. And after about 1849, the Carson Trail route to the American River and Placerville, California, gold digging region. So for those people who are in California, you know where all this is. For those people in Nevada, you have a vague idea where this is. And everyone else is sort of like, I don't know, that's out west somewhere.
1: Yep. That's pretty much what that's how I feel about that. So now you've got this, you you understand kind of the context. These people are moving out West, right? So you've got like, this is before the gold rush. People are going to settle. And now you've got a group of people that want to go out there. So let's talk about the groups of people that are actually involved in this Donner party. Now, the Donner party was a large group of emigrants originally under the captainship of Colonel Russell. So Colonel Russell is the person that's kind of organizing it. And he's going to lead the charge out West for this group.
0: He's got a big old handlebar mustache. He's like... <laughs> Get your pots and pans together. We are heading west. <laughs> we are heading west.
1: He just sounds like Val Kilmer from Tombstone. Just so if you need that, if you need that reference, it's like, I'll be a huckleberry. <laughs> At
0: the headwaters of Sweetwater River, which is a 238 mile long tributary of the North Platte River in Wyoming, most of the last immigrants on the trail who were headed to California via the Hastings Cutoff formed a company under George Donner's leadership. Mm -hmm. And it was not until the immigrant train reached the Wasatch Mountains east of Great Salt Lake that the final stragglers arrived sort of completing the Donner party. So that's that we're going to go back and actually revisit some of this trip because there's some important steps along the way. But just to understand there was just this large group of people involved, like just many families.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of like Give an idea of who was in this party we're looking at first the donner party which which constituted 19 people you've got george donner who was 60 the third wife of george you've got Tamson, who was 45 and their three children francis who's six georgia who's four and eliza who's three and then you've got george's two daughters from a previous marriage Elitha cumey 14 and liana who is 12. then you've got the brother of george jacob donner who's 56 His wife, Elizabeth, 45, and their five children, George, who's nine, Mary, who's seven, Isaac, who's five, Samuel, who's four, and Lewis, who's three. And then you've got Mrs. Donner's two children from a previous marriage, Solomon Hook, which is an awesome name. That is very cool. Who's 14, and William Hook, who's 12.
0: In addition, the Donner Party had two Teamsters, Noah James, who was 20, and Samuel Shoemaker, who was 25, and a friend, John Denton, 28, from Sheffield, England.
1: So that's the Donner party themselves. They themselves have 19 people traveling with them, which you can see there are a lot of children in this party.
0: And then we also have another party, which is the Reed family or the Reed family party. And this consisted of James Frazier Reed, who was 46 and his wife, Margaret Reed, who was 32 large age gaps. in some of these patriarchies yeah. i have noticed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there are three children, Martha, who for some reason they called Patty, who was eight James Jr., who was five and Thomas, who was three.
1: Yep, and then you got Mrs. Reed's daughter from a previous marriage, Virginia Backenstow Reed, who's 13, Mrs. Reed's mother, Sarah Keyes, who's 75, which actually is pretty impressive given that timeline. Yeah. That's a concern, right? Like, that person is going to have a hard time on this trip. And also six employees. you got a servant, Eliza Williams, who's 25, her half-brother, Bayless Williams, who, who's 24, and four Teamsters, Milford Milt Elliott, who's 28, Walter Heron, who's 25,
0: and James Smith,
1: who's 25, and, and Hiram Miller, who's unknown
0: random person. So 19 people in the Darning party, eight people in the Reed party, 27 people total estimated range, 25 to 35 unclear on how many people exactly, but that's about where it seems to be. There Records were are a little bit difficult to parse out. Okay. So there were some, some varying numbers. I'm not entirely sure how they counted everyone, but essentially 81 people went into the Sierra Nevadas after the groups had split off and anywhere from about 45 to 48 or something. people ended up making it through. So this is a list of those who survived. We'll say the family and then the number of people who survived from that family
1: of these groups, 49 survivors. So you'll see that the, this is a large party that was organized. Now, Got the Breen family from Ireland by way of Keokuk, Iowa. There were nine members of that family. You've got the Reed family from Springfield, Illinois, which you covered already, and they've got six folks with them. You
0: have got the George Donner family from Sangamon County, Illinois, with five people, and the Jacob Donner family from Sangamon County, Illinois, with three people.
1: Then you got the Eddie family from Belleville, Illinois, who was just only one, one person. And then the Graves family from Marshall County, Illinois, who had eight people. So you've, again, there's, and there's all, and within all these families, there are young children. Most of them are under the age of 10.
0: Right. Then we have the Murphy family and there were three people and then the Foster family, which had two people.
1: And then the Pike family, which was two and the McCutcheon family who was two.
0: And then finally we have the Wolfinger. It's kind of a cool name. Family is <laughs> yeah. one person. The Kaisberg family with two people, and then there were some individuals, including employees of the family, which made up uh, a total about five people.
1: Here's what we need to know kind of right now, okay? So the Reed party, essentially the Reed and the Donner party, they kind of organized all this. They got everybody together, but Reed himself bought a luxury RV of wagons, okay? So he got himself the crown jewel of wagons to travel, okay? It's a two-story behemoth with a built-in iron stove and sleeping bunks for the very for every family member. It required eight oxen to pull just their wagon. And so you'll see kind of like when you kind of look this stuff up, it's pretty impressive that this type of technology existed that was just really just a, horse and carriage type of situation so on april 15th of 1846 all the families of james reed and george and jacob donner departed from springfield illinois to start a new life in california and about 100 miles from independence missouri the group of 25 to 35 additional joined a large wagon train so all of them joined together about 100 miles outside of independence missouri
0: right and so they began their journey on may 12th 1846 this is 30 days or about one month Too late for their journey to start to avoid the worst of winter. So remember that it was expected to take about five months, probably slower when you're in a wagon train rather than just on horseback. And so, you know, they're looking at if they had been going at a much higher speed landing there in November, which would have already been kind of rough. And this is going to take much longer. So a couple of quick events along the way. So as I said, they depart on May 12th. The water raised twenty feet in the Big Blue River in Kansas on May 26th, so that obviously slowed them down. And then Sarah Keys, the 75-year-old elder elder woman in the group, she died of tuberculosis along the river on May 29th.
1: So as you see here, like they they've already come under some hardships, and they've only they're only a month in, right? So like this is already not. Well for this group and the fact that they left a month late like like Abraham said like this is a significant problem because the trails everything that they're going to travel through is going to be really dangerous and harsh winters it's already there the winters are already harsh as it is now add to that that they're traveling and having to stay alive and survive during that time not a great not a great thing now in June they arrive in Fort Laramie Wyoming. Okay. And so they are there and the group had made good progress all the way to Fort Laramie in what is now southeastern Wyoming. And they covered about six hundred and fifty miles in six weeks. So not too bad. I mean, it's still pretty slow compared to today's standards, but they made it. And and considering that the trails they're following are fairly recently like kind of created trails and they are traveling with a ton of animals and a ton of stock and material to kind of get to where they're going, right? So now, on July 20th, 1846, the company divided, with most of the wagon train then turning north toward Fort Hall, which is in modern southeastern Idaho, and they decided to use the well-known Oregon Trail to continue the journey west. The Reeds, the Donners, and a number of others chose to head southwest toward Fort Bridger, Wyoming, and this is pretty much the biggest mistake they could have made.
0: Yeah, and so this there's another important piece in here, which there is this idea of there being a shortcut through uh, Utah. So... There was this guide that became become really popular called the Lansford-Hastings Immigrants Guide to Oregon and California. And in, in it, the author, Lansford-Hastings, hypothesized there was this shortcut that would get people there faster and more directly, shaving off many weeks of travel. And so uh, it really turns out, though, that this Lansford-Hastings guy was, he was kind of like the Breitbart of his day. So <laughs> really full of just lies and misinformation to sell a book or two. And so anyway, Reed, he actually was very moved by this Breitbart story and it's hypothesized shortcut. And he anticipated building a business empire by helping to like use his experience traveling this shortcut to route people through that same shortcut by showing how successful he was. At navigating this brilliant, more direct, faster route there. And so it was like, oh, I'm going to get so rich. I'm going to help people cross the United States to get to California. And so he was going to build this empire and hence maps.com. Just kidding. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that was not <laughs> But anyway, James Kleiman warned that the routes that they were trying to take were barely passable by foot. Turns out that people had tried to go this way before and were unsuccessful. Hastings was not one of them. He just said that it existed because facts don't matter and you can sell a book. Yep, pretty much. And since
1: at the time it was very difficult to verify this stuff in a timely manner, people were accessing this information and, and it wasn't really great. So yeah. keep this in mind. So now you've got this luxury RV of wagons that's supposedly is supposed to pass through a barely passable by foot trail. It's not going to happen right now. And already keep this in mind. This party, this group has already lost one person to tuberculosis and they're already a month behind on their trip. Okay. So now it's like the shortcut sounds great. We're going to get there. We're going to avoid this harsh winter. We're going to avoid like traveling through the mountains, which is already a challenge as it is. We're going to avoid all these things. Now you've got Hastings, who's this classic con man, right? And he sought to ensure the integrity of the guidebook. So he wrote to the Donner party to join them. But they were two weeks ahead or two weeks too late. It's kind of hard to tell. Hastings wanted to join them to kind of like verify this trip. And it just didn't really seem to work out in a really meaningful way.
0: Yeah. So essentially, when they were supposed to join up with him, either he had left two weeks earlier than he was supposed to, or they showed up two weeks later. Unclear based on the communications we have. Either way, he wasn't there when they got there and they were expecting to meet him. And so going back to this, they're moving Very, very slowly, they're moving about a mile a day versus 15 miles a day. That's wild. I know, I was like, I move so much faster than that without even trying. So think about
1: this for a second. Like a mile is not very far in the grand scheme of things, but imagine having to move because part of the trip is that they're having to also clear brush. They're having to clear like, you know, obstacles in their path because they're traveling a path that has not been blazed. This trail has not been blazed.
0: And it's about to get so much worse. So they kept on picking up more people. But in July of 1876, essentially, they came to a disagreement. They had a route where one was going to follow the traditional Oregon Trail route, get dysentery, hunt for rabbits, that sort of thing. Uh And then you had the other group was going to follow this new Hastings Cut route that would take them through presumably the Sierra Nevadas and directly into what is now Sacramento, California. They eventually disagreed on who was going to go what. Basically, members of the group had become less and less convinced that they were on the right trail, particularly with these warnings that they weren't going to be able to make it. And so a large faction of them broke off. But of course, the Reeds and many others decided that they were going to follow the southern trail that headed more directly toward California. So
1: in a surprise twist somebody was murdered. So on October 5th of 1846, John Snyder was stabbed in the abdomen by James Reed and the stabbing was over the care of an animal, the whipping of an ox. So essentially John was whipping the ox and James Reed decided to put a knife in his stomach, apparently. So as a result of this, James Reed was exiled from the group and ended up making it to a post and initiated the later search party for the Donners because now that Reed's gone, he's still trying to be a hero. He's trying to get to the Donners and realizing they're stuck. He's actually the person that starts the search party for them.
0: Okay. So they get into the Nevadas and they're starting to head up into the mountains, which is very, very tough and uh, uh, very rocky. And it's very difficult to navigate with with wagons. As you said, there is Mm -hmm. a lot of brush to clear. There are trees and plants and shrubs and all kinds of things that are in the way that make it very difficult. And they encountered an early winter storm. And this essentially sealed their fate. Like this is more or less the beginning of the end. Had they not had to face the snow, there's actually a good chance they would have eventually made it there, albeit very hungry and way behind schedule. Mm-hmm. But it would became nearly impossible to move in the snow. It was dumping many feet of snow very quickly. And they had to eat something. So they began eating cow hide, cow bones, and tree bark, oxhide, leather pretty much anything they had available and they'd try and, you know, they'd boil it down to make it as soft as possible so that they could digest it.
1: This is where it's getting desperate, right? Like, so if they had, they left a month earlier, because I mean, when they were getting ready to embark on this trip, a lot of people were saying you should not be going right now. It's going to be dangerous. The winters are bad. And they were like, ah, it'll be fine. There's a shortcut. There's a shortcut. We'll get there. And that's, and actually that's what cost them. That cost them everything because Had they left earlier, had they not followed the shortcuts, quote-unquote shortcuts, had they not gone against all of the normal kind of trailblazing rules and guidelines, had they not done all those things, they probably would would have been a lot less stressed, I guess we'll say.
0: Yeah. All right. So essentially what happened was as people were starving to death, were freezing to death, or for whatever reason, weren't making it through this winter, they started being faced with the choice of what to do with their dead since they now had an untapped resource. Uh So at least at first, they were not killing each other for food. This was not a draw the short straw sort of thing. It was that people were dying anyway and that then they would choose to eat them, at least initially. And so that was going on, but it got worse. Now they did send some people off to try and go get help. I think that if I remember correctly, only (laughs) they didn't all make it. Yep, The people who were sent to go rescue didn't quite make it. I mean, they were gone for a long time. Now, as we had said, they had exiled James Reed, and so he made it down. And when they were not showing up when they were supposed to, and he saw the storm, they became concerned. And so, again, they were supposed to have arrived by November, assuming they were able to stay on track. This is now February 1847, and in San Francisco, a naval officer Selim Woodworth had been put in charge of relief operations, and then Reed was intending to lead the rescue party called the Second Relief, and both men set out from San Francisco, Woodworth to sail for Sutter's Fort, Reed to cross San Francisco Bay and recruit men and horses in the Sonoma and Napa areas.
1: So according to Patrick Breen's diary, this is kind of what it was looking like for those groups that were stuck. Well, the rescue parties initiated, the group that stuck kind of looks like this. Quote, ceased to snow last after one of the most severe storms we experienced this winter the snow fell about four feet deep i had to shovel the snow off our shanty this morning it thawed so fast and thawed during the whole storm today it is quite pleasant wind southwest milt is here i always have a hard time reading stuff like this because it's like so disjointed and stuff but here today and says mrs reed has to get a hide from mrs murphy End quote. And so you'll see eventually William Eddy's wife Eleanor dies at the Murphy cabin. So like the people are dying while they're kind of reporting like how horrible these conditions are. Four feet of snow. Essentially they have a shanty, a wagon, some hides. They're not prepared for this type of winter and they're stuck.
0: And so we kind of said with the shanty. Essentially what they did is they did build a little camp with these sort of makeshift cabins in it. They obviously weren't going to be enough to really protect them, and they certainly weren't going to be enough for them to find food. Yeah, houses don't really do that. Relief parties started coming in on skis in very small groups because they did try and make it up there on horseback, but the snow was so bad that they got stuck and turned around and they basically just couldn't do it. So instead, they got their cross country skis out, got on their like Mm -hmm. track suits, and started doing their, you know, (laughs) their walk across the mountains. Yeah. And so, of the 87 who entered the Sierra, the Wasatch Mountains, only 48 left. And three mules made it to California alive. So, a little over half of the group. Yeah. Of the 81 pioneers who began the Donner Party's horrific winter in Sierra Nevada, only 45 managed to walk out alive. So, we're talking about pretty substantial losses here.
1: And to kind of highlight this rescue party, like when they would come in small groups, they would only be able to bring back small groups of people, too. So you would have folks that were left in the camp while they were pulling people out. So, I mean, this rescue took a long time. It was not something that happened where they got everybody out at the same time. Now, the ordeal proved particularly costly for the group's 15 solo travelers, but all of but two who have who died. Right. So to so only two of the 15 employees survived. But it also took a tragic toll on the families. George and Jacob Donner, both of their wives and their four children, all perished. Pioneer William Eddy, meanwhile, lost his wife and his two kids. Nearly a dozen families that had made up the Donner wagon train, but only two, the Reeds and the Breen's, managed to arrive in California without suffering a single death.
0: And important side note here, this Hastings guy never paid any kind of reparations, never apologized. It was kind of like, eh, that's on you guys. Sucks to be you. Yeah, shouldn't have trusted me. Yeah. (laughs) Buyer beware. Yeah. So those who ended up perishing and being consumed included, and probably not limited to, but George Donner, Tamson Donner, and Samuel Donner. And Eliza Donner survived and lived in LA until nineteen twenty two. So those are the those are some of those that were eaten. And we also have the names of who ate them, but I don't know if we need to share them necessarily.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these folks, like they kind of lived with the aftermath of this for a long time, like because when the rescue parties arrived to the camps, they were they found that they found that they were eating human body parts. They weren't murdered at that time to be eaten, but they were finding that that kind of like that grim. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how I would feel if I discovered that, like I would probably have a hard time with that. And especially then where you're like, you're going to rescue people. And it's like, oh, they're actually eating people. Okay, so those folks lived with that, especially Eliza Donner lived with that for the rest of her life.
0: So currently the last Donner campsite is, it's called the the Tahoe National Forest. So that's someplace you can still visit. There is Donner Summit is a place that I-80 drives right through. There's Donner Lake is right off of the freeway. It's actually a really pretty area. Um, Just don't go in the winter, I guess.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Avoid that for sure.
0: Yeah. And so anyway, in April 17th, 1847, this is 174 years ago at the time that this episode will come out. This will come out fairly close to that time. We tried to line it up, so it was, it was pretty close. But that was the last effort to try and find survivors. And then in 1849, survivors went back and identified the Donner campsite and where they had been sort of holed up during their, their harrowing journey. Yeah.
1: I, you know, I, I'm not an outdoors person at all, so I could not imagine having to deal with all this. Like, I would probably go mad. Like, that's the only thing I could think of, is like, I would probably go mad and not survive. I'm, I'm too weak for this world.
0: I feel like I'm sort of outdoorsy, but I definitely do not have the skills to build a functional cabin and, and try and survive off of the winter landscape of the Sierra Nevadas.
1: So what, so I guess my thing is, is when you kind of look at this big picture, the Donner Party, right? It wasn't just about people eating people. And I think that's the, th- the message gets misconstrued. Like the issue is that you've got a survival issue here, right? You've got folks, you've got large groups of people who made a lot of bad decisions and ultimately had to survive, and so they are taking extreme measures here to be able to survive. I mean, obviously this is extreme. Nobody, I mean, they, and they, and you can see here they did try not to get to a point where they're eating people, right? They're eating cow bones. They're boiling that so they can actually like eat something like tree bark or something soft. Like they're getting some nutrition or trying to get some nutrition from other places before they ever resorted to something like this.
0: And I don't think we mentioned this before, but they I mean, they did abandon their wagons long before they got to this point. So Mm -hmm. it's not like they were they were like, do I save my children? Do I save my stuff? I think I'll go with my stuff. They had basically already decided, Okay, like it's very clear we're not going to make it through with their wagons. Many of them have already broken down anyway, like stuff be damned. We are making it to California. We're getting out of this winter. We're getting out of these mountains. And so they, they pressed on. And so that means that they had relatively little left. Like some of their oxen had run away in the night because they were obviously starving and being mistreated. And like, it was a horrible situation for them. But those that left after they, they ate the animals they had with them and then they ate the trees and the tree bark. And then, you know, people are dying and they're looking around thinking, should we, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like that's a tough, that's a really tough place to be in. And I can imagine you know, if you've already been traveling for at this point, what is it like eight months and you, you've been out of food for a long time, you're starving, you're boiling like literally anything at all that you can digest within sight. And then somebody dies and I don't know, it's it, thinking of this very strictly in terms of the motivation and the payout here of your body is telling you you are dying from starvation like the pain is clear the 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 experience is clear the Ill, the sickness and lack of energy that comes from not having eaten in days is clear and then somebody dies and it's like okay if i eat them i'm going to survive and feel better i i think it's very clear to see and understand why someone would pursue this thinking like you know, how do I get rid of this pain? How do I increase the likelihood of my survival? How do I decrease my lack of comfort here? Yeah, and so uh, it's pretty pretty straightforward, honestly. Just like when you have that severe of a situation, what wouldn't you be willing to do to survive?
1: Also keeping in mind at this point in time, like you said, they've ditched most of their gear. They've ditched most of their stuff. So they're really working with very rudimentary tools. They do not have the things to hunt that they need to. And it's also a very, very, very cold winter. So, you know, you animals are hibernating. They're they're sparse. You're not going to find a lot of sustainable food in this context. So this is the most extreme situation that these folks could be in. Like I said, we're not—they're not like—they're not, like, not specifically murdering people to eat them. That's not what was happening. Folks were dying due to the extreme conditions, due to exposure. So this was this was all they could do to survive. So you know, I don't know that many people were very understanding of that at the time that this happened. And they're still kind of—I think people kind of go, "Oh God, eating people!" But the motivation, the context, all of the things that you would account for here—it actually makes logical sense to get to this
0: point. So let's actually dig in a little bit on that, of looking at these motivations and cannibalism as it has existed over time. Yeah. Because other countries have experienced cannibalism. The Soviet Union has experienced cannibalism. Mm -hmm. In Timothy Snyder's book, Badlands, he documented the Stalin-imposed famine in Ukraine and stated that individuals became so starved and famished that cannibalism became unfortunately, fairly common-ish. Yeah. And so much so that anti-cannibalism squads were formed and hundreds of people accused of eating their neighbors and even in some cases, family members were sort of rounded up.
1: There's a really great fiction book called um, City of Thieves. It takes place during World War II during some of these famines. And there's a scene where the main character's in a market, he's looking to buy food, he's looking to do this stuff, and then somebody kind of lures him to an apartment. And when he walks in, there's like specifically a scene where it's like, pretty horrific, but it is like an example of like what people were willing to do and like how people would just kind of disappear off the streets because they'd end up in butcher shops.
0: Yeah. Sweeney, Sweeney Todd going on up in here.
1: Yeah. Very Sweeney Todd. Very Sweeney Todd. Yeah. So Charles McCannichan identified the Donner campsite and evidence from the campsite include archaeologists found an 1830 U.S. penny at the site. They found an 1839 Isle of Man farthing made of copper which is 1 960th of a value, right? The Isle of Man is a self-governing British crown dependency, so you couldn't really use that here. But they found specifically some evidence that the folks were there. They were able to confirm that the Donner site was there. And they found a lot of different things, like they found leftover tools, the shanty, and all that kind of stuff to confirm that that was the actual site.
0: Unable to determine if or where there was a grave site for James Donner because they did did bury some of their dead or Mm -hmm. at least some of the remains of the dead that were left. They didn't eat all of them. Yeah, (laughs) The leftovers were received a grave (laughs) oh oh no now there's also some debate on whether eating placenta is cannibalism and for those who are unaware there is this practice that exists in some places where after a child is born that you cook and eat the placenta Mm -hmm. that is basically tissue that was grown that came out of a human that's for a human that's contains the waste of human mm-hmm. and so there's this idea that it's very healthful there's not really any evidence of that actually it's very possible it can be very toxic because you're essentially eating human waste yeah and so there's there's a lot of debate on whether this is considered cannibalism i'm not going to weigh on that weigh in on it other than to say the health benefits that seem to exist seem to not be based on very solid science
1: yep absolutely absolutely So we kind of talked about this idea of other forms of cannibalism that do exist, and most of the world didn't know anyone lived in the highlands of Papua New Guinea until about the 1930s, when Australian gold prospectors, they surveyed the area and realized there were about a million people that lived there. And when researchers made their way to those villages in the 1950s, they found something that they described as disturbing. Among a tribe of about 11,000 people called the Four... Up to 200 people a year had been dying of an inexplicable illness, and they called the disease Kuru, which means shivering or trembling.
0: Okay, and so in many villages, when a person died, that person would be cooked and then consumed. And it was actually an act of love and of grief. It was a way for them to deal with the healing process of having lost a loved one.
1: Yeah. So as one medical researcher described it, quote, if the body was buried, it was eaten by worms. If it was placed on a platform, it was eaten by maggots. And the four believed it was much better that the body was eaten by people who loved the deceased than by worms and
0: insects. And so women removed the brain, mixed it with ferns and cooked it in tubes of bamboo. They fire roasted and ate everything except the gallbladder. And it was primarily adult women who did so, says Lindenbaum, because their bodies were thought to be capable of housing and taming the dangerous spirit that would accompany the dead body. Mm. I've actually had heard, we talked a little bit this about this group in our episode on prions, uh-huh. because eating misfolded proteins can lead to the proliferation of misfolded proteins, which leads to prion diseases. And so this is one way that that can happen. And one of the reasons that we don't want to practice cannibalism. I mean, mm-hmm. there are so many reasons, but that's one.
1: <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have great long term long-term effects, folks.
0: Right. And then for those of you who are familiar, when the entire world froze over and there was just a single train left and on that train, they had to eat babies. Oh, I don't like that. No, that was was actually from the movie Snowpiercer. Now a TV show. Oh, okay. Oh,
1: yeah. I haven't. So see, I was like, I was very confused. I was like, when did that happen? Did it happen last week?
0: No, the world has never frozen over and then had a single nonstop train circumnavigating the globe. Yeah, that'd be interesting. It's a long train. It wasn't it was long, but it was more that it the tracks were really long. So Oh, okay. Yeah, that's fair.
1: Yeah, we we have to distinguish between the tracks and the train. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So anyway, very very interesting story.
1: Yeah. Chris Evans in that movie, by the way. Oh, he's great. Yeah. People are discovering that he's covered in tattoos and people are losing their minds over it.
0: Didn't he accidentally post a picture of himself naked on social media? Yes, he did. Okay. Yes, he did. So
1: and everybody fell in love with him even more because he was like, oops. Like, that's all he did. He was like, oops. <laughs> and then it was fine. Yeah. All right, so to kind of wrap this up today, like, so now we know the Donner Party and kind of like what the, the circumstances that led them to this, but there are some other interesting tidbits that we want to cover. So at the memorial site, there is a statue that is about 22 feet tall, and some say that's the height of the snowfall of the winter of 46, 47, 1846 and 1847. However, many dispute the specific snowfall. stating that 22 feet is a total accumulation of snowfall that winter and not during that particular storm.
0: Donner historian Charles McLashan. Charles McClashen went back to the site site and dug up the last log from the Murphy cabin. So when they got this last log that they dug up, they split it into many pieces and sealed it up with wax. They sold this to raise funds to build a memorial site. And you can purchase one of these pieces of the log on eBay, or at least you could. And I, I'm sure that's they sort of periodically make their way up there. Yeah. And probably some people just grab random splinters and put them in wax and tell you it's from the cabin. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's eBay. But at the Donner State Memorial, Donner Camp or Murphy Cabin built in November 1844 by Moses Schallenberger with the help of Joseph Foster and Ale- Alan Montgomery. And they were part of the first immigrant train to make it to California.
1: It's really interesting. You can kind of see all the stuff that does exist and you can see some of the the leftovers from that campsite, but I don't know that I would ever want to see that because I feel like that's such a horrific, like I feel like that's such a strange monument to like human suffering, right? Like that's ultimately what that becomes is a, is a monument to human suffering. Those folks really struggled and it was not because they were horrible people or it was just really a, a series of bad circumstances. And so, you know, it's unfortunate, but it, it does kind of tell you to what, you know, to what degree humans will go to survive.
0: So, yeah, we've been saying that they weren't yet murdering people to actually eat them. And that, that only happened one time. Of course, there were two Native Americans on, within the group that were guides, and at some point those natives, they refused to engage in cannibalism and were concerned for themselves that they might become meals. <laughs> and so they ran away, but they were found. They were tired and exhausted. They were laying in the snow. And the the immigrants who were traveling, they found them and murdered them. And that was the the one instance in which people were actually murdered and and used for food. Yeah. I can't imagine... You know, one of the stories of them returning in one of the rescue missions, because they can only take so many people at a time and finding someone who is just like out of their mind, delusional, Mm -hmm. you know, seemed very confused about what was going on, probably had been starving for a long time, probably had cannibalized some people, hadn't interacted with very many other people. I mean, just how severe of a circumstance that that is and how difficult it would be if you were in that circumstance to have any idea what the right thing to do would be. And I think, you know, Mm -hmm. generally not to say that like this, there was a lot of things that went wrong here and some people made some decisions that they could have not made that would not have resulted in this tragedy taking place. And, you know, I try and be understanding as much as possible, given that like it did happen. And so what can we learn about this? And I think learning, you know, understanding at least, First of all, not to trust nonsense news (laughs) things that tell you about things that don't exist and aren't real because it'll lead to you eating your loved ones. Right. But also, like, people will do what it takes to survive in situations like that.
1: I think it speaks to the, you know, the idea of how much people are willing to do to maybe, I don't want to even say survive, because I feel like this, I feel like this entire trek is a big it's it's a lot of response effort, right? It's a lot of work to go from one city that's already established that you could be okay in and move into a place where you're like supposed to have all your dreams come true, right? Like that idea of like how ideals get in the way or they drive people to do certain things like that are way beyond what their skill capacities are or their normal, their normal engagement is. I mean, I, I don't know that I I mean, if somebody told me like, okay, if you, if you travel this way for six months and you get out here, all your dreams will come true. That's, that's enticing, but it's also one of those things where I'm like, nah, that's too much work. So I don't know. I feel like these people like really, I mean, I guess it came out of necessity, but there is no circumstance where I could put myself in their shoes and understand it. I guess.
0: It's interesting too, thinking about essentially like they were on the road for nearly a year. Mm-hmm. The better part of a year, at the very least. Yeah, like that's so much time to be doing something, and and the fact that like they weren't obviously working during that time. Yeah, so they basically put all their money into this trip to move, so they could have food and and wagons, and essentially thinking like we'll get there, and then we'll have money to set to get started. But it also speaks to just like what a very different world was around at the time where you could afford to do something like that as sort of a middle of the road person of like, Oh yeah, I'll just travel for the next five months, assuming it was going to be five months and then I'll, I'll get a job when I get there. Like that's, yeah, that's wild, man.
1: And I think too, one thing that's really kind of interesting to think about within this is like, we're talking about this, like it happened hundreds of years ago. This was less than 150 years ago, right? Like, like you think about when this happened, this was at the Start of the country, which the start of the country in the United States was not that long ago. So when you really put that into perspective of all of human history, I mean, when we talk about like you know, you talk about the Romans, you talk about like Constantinople, you talk about like all Hannibal, you know, Hannibal's trek and all that stuff. You talk about all those things that are like these really cool, interesting, like historical things that have happened in human history. This happened less than 150 years ago.
0: 170 years ago.
1: I'm sorry, it happened 170 years ago. I keep saying that for some reason. I saw 147 somewhere so so it happened long enough ago though that it's it's not that far removed from history right like there are members of these families that still are alive today and around these bloodlines are still around that's really interesting i don't know i just find that really fascinating that this was something that happened pretty recently in the grand scheme of things in the grand scheme of human history
0: i mean that's kind of the take-home points really is the what we've just mentioned is just describing essentially the circumstances under which this took place I think having a little humanity and understanding what this, what these families went through and that we'd like to believe that we would never be in a situation like that, but we don't know. You know, I think we, you just never know until you're there. Yeah. And you know, I think there's interesting things to unpack further to just understand things like hunger and motivation, the longest anyone's ever gone without food. I've heard that about a story about a guy who went a year mm. who was like really obese and um, all he did all all he consumed for a year was like coffee, oh, and like tea, and then that was it. Hmm. And then lost all that weight and basically just fasted for an entire year, something like that. That's pretty wild. I don't know how safe or real that is, but that I've I've heard that story and seen it multiple places. That's definitely not recommended. No, and I I think especially back at this time, like they didn't have that kind of body weight to spend on things like that. You know, right. they were all probably right. starting off pretty thin to begin with. So,
1: yeah, I was gonna say, Snickers didn't exist back then. Right. Yeah. I think that covers take home points, though. I mean, I don't have anything to add to that because, I mean, it's just it's just one of those things where it's an extreme. It's a it's a story that gets twisted into people, ate people, and it's not quite that clear. Everything's contextual. Right. Like, I mean, that is a very particular circumstance with a with a lot of different variables that contribute to it. And hopefully you don't end up in a situation where you have to eat your family.
0: Definitely, definitely hope that that does not happen to anybody. Yeah. Cool. Let's have some recommendations then. Let's do it. Recommendations. All right. Since we're talking about food, I'm going to recommend a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> I did not do this on purpose and I don't think that this restaurant would uh like me to be associating them with cannibalism which I'm not. Uh-huh. But anyway, there's a there's a restaurant called Ike's Love and Sandwiches. It is one of my favorite sandwich places ever and if you just look up the website loveandsandwiches.com you can find they have like 350 sandwiches on their menu. Oh my god. Or something absurd like that. Yeah, it's a it's a ludicrously huge menu but I really, really love their stuff. I'm 100% sure it is not made of humans in any capacity. Yeah. And they have a ton, of, a ton of options for various diets. So I think that they have like keto options and vegan and vegetarian options and regular non-dietary restricted options, of course. Yeah. And they, uh, they use Dutch crunch bread on most of their sandwiches. It's just so good.
1: Oh, that sounds, that, that sounds really good. So what's your go-to when you go there?
0: They have this one called the Javale McGee. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, and that's that's my go-to. That's my favorite okay. sandwich.
1: What's on it? Well, you got you can't just say you can't just say, you got to tell oh. what's, what goes on this sandwich. Sorry. Knowing our history about when we talk about condiments and stuff, I know there's
0: mustard on it. <laughs> so the sandwiches are only like ten bucks, which is another reason, I mean, at least in my opinion, that seems like I could put, it, that's reasonable yeah, price for what it is. And so um, this one is uh, vegan turkey, wasabi mayo, barbecue, avocado. And then anything else you want to add, like onions, jalapenos, lettuce, that sort of thing.
1: Wow. And there is no mustard
0: on it. I was wrong. Yeah. I I think that I thought that there was, but there is not. It's the wasabi mayo that that I think really helps carry it. That sounds awesome. I love sandwiches. Sandwiches are so good.
1: So my recommendation this week is a book called Black Card by Chris L. Terry. Chris Terry is a, an author. He was in a band called Like the Fuse and Run, which was around for a little bit in the early 2000s. They used to do some shows with like, um, they, they did, I believe they did a split with a band called Hot Cross and they used to tour with Transistor Transistor and stuff. I think they did a split with Transistor Transistor too. So really cool band, really interesting, very much so a time capsule of that time. But this book is about kind of, it's a fiction book about him kind of exploring his, what he calls his blackness, right? So he's half black. And grew up with a a black dad, white mom, and he kind of talks about what it's like to navigate that when you kind of quote unquote toe the line or like you kind of like straddle the line a little bit where he kind of grew up as a skater, punk rock, like grew up in a space where he and, and he's passing, he's white passing. So he kind of always had white experiences and got exposed to. Things like racism and stuff haphazardly right as a result of just being white passing he kind of heard some really horrible things and and people freely using the n-word and stuff and so he wrote this really great story about kind of like exploring that and what it's like to kind of navigate identity like race identity and all that so it's a really cool really interesting read it's a really great companion book to how to be an anti-racist like it actually fits really well it gives i think how to be an anti-racist overlays with it really nicely so it's a really cool just a really nice cool story
0: awesome yeah all right well if you are a cannibal or you know something about the donner party story that we did not share please let us know i mean if you are a cannibal then i would like to know why we will not immediately call the authorities i guess Yeah. Yes, we will. No, you shouldn't be. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned. Don't be a cannibal. <laughs> <laughs> if you are Chris L. Terry or you like, oh, would like to recommend any of Chris L. Terry's books, please uh, post that on one of our social media posts. We'll be mm-hmm. posting these recommendations and asking for other people to share theirs. Their favorite restaurants, their favorite books, that sort of thing, uh, particularly sandwich shops and books on mm-hmm. race, I think are, are great ones I'd like to see people posting about. Yeah. If you have any of the fun stories to share about the Donner Party or generally, I think the Gold Rush probably would be really interesting. We're happy to hear those. Yeah. Please reach out to us. You can email us directly at info at can reach us on all the social media platforms. We're primarily, I think, active on a lot of the Facebook and Instagram. You will speak with one of us if you do that. And uh, hey, consider joining us on Patreon. We have a new set of tiers, a new set of benefits that we are uh, launching out. And we're happy to see some people engaging that platform and and getting to access all that cool content.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We are so stoked. I mean, we are going through uh, uh, a growth over here at Why We Do What We Do. So Why
0: We Do What We Do Renaissance. Uh Uh-huh. We love it. (laughs) All right. Anything else from you, Shane? Nope. That's all I got today. All right. Thank you so much for recording with me today. Thank you, Selena, for her notes on this episode. Selena Schilling, one of our newer writers. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for listening. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya.
2: You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash WWD you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD WWD podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at NogDesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.
1: Especially as imitation measure or an act of war, like that would freak me out if I'm on the front line. imitation measure. That's I'm right. What did I say? Imitation. Oh, <laughs> just them waving their hands like this. <laughs> this isn't even attached to me. Ah, <laughs> hi.